the color of the flag that was displayed on ships to signal quarantine, that they were infected with yellow fever, was yellow. And so the fever itself came to be called Yellow Jack. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, you were talking last time about some historical names of diseases, and a lot of them have changed names. Some of them we've decided are not diseases after all. The next one that we were going to talk about was something that I hadn't heard about, which is called bone shave. Um, is that a, still a disease? What, what, what is that? It's a term that was used for what we now call sciatica. Mm -hmm. And the original word was B-O-N-E-S-H-A-W, bone shaw. And uh, somehow by popular etymology, it got changed into bone shave, which is not very suggestive of the disease because it was used as a name for a tumor growing out of horses' heels. And it may still be referred to occasionally by people dealing with horses rather than people. So it did find a home in the animal world. It's pretty much disappeared as a term for human illness. But uh, you say we'll call it sciatica. Right? Or, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about brain fever? Do we still have brain fever? Well, people often have feverish imaginations and so on. But uh, when you're speaking in medical terms, brain fever had to do with the swelling of the membranes that uh, line the skull, the meninges. Uh, and that's why we call it meningitis or encephalitis today. Um, it's often an affliction that people suffer from and usually die of in 19th century novels. We still don't want brain fever, right? Meningitis right. is quite, quite serious. Some of these have really uh, fun and descriptive names. And the next one really captures my imagination. Break bone fever. What is that and why don't we call it break bone fever anymore? Yeah, well, this was a fever that caused you to tremble so severely and have spasms that would actually break your bones. Uh, and it referred specifically to dengue fever. I had the vague impression that dengue fever was something that emerged recently, but evidently it's been around for a long time. The first account of an outbreak was in 1779. And the the name dengue had been around uh, just about that long, but uh, it was sometimes called breakbone fever uh, because of the pain in the muscles and joints that people had felt like their their bones were breaking. Aha, uh -huh, I see. Well, uh, dengue fever, another one of those mosquito-borne diseases, along with right. malaria. Well, okay, we're, we're really on the colorful ones here. We have breakbone fever and bronze john. Bronze john is a disease? What is that? Yeah, that's kind of a joke, actually. <laughs> uh, this is a really peculiar one. It's yellow fever, and yellow fever was called that for a long time ago and, and still is around as a medical name, but it was loosely, popularly referred to as yellow jack and the Jack in this case was not like a Jack in the Box or Jack Kennedy or anything like that, but the a flag, you know, about the Union Jack, and that's the British flag. The color of the flag that was displayed on ships to signal quarantine that they were infected with yellow fever 
was yellow. And so the fever itself came to be called Yellow Jack after that flag. And then if you wanted to be really fancy and snooty and didn't like the common sounding of Yellow Jack, you could elevate it to Bronze John. Okay, I see. I see. So it's just a yellow flag. Yes, I think it's probably a joke on the way upper crust people might disdain something so common as Yellow Jack. Well, uh, the next one on the list is not one that I have a good pronunciation guide for. So you're going to lead us into the next one. Well, that's caducus. C-A-D-U-C-O-U-S. That means subject to epilepsy or falling sickness. Epilepsy has had a huge number of, of words associated with it. People assumed uh, in ancient times often that it had to do with being seized by a spirit and was associated with inspiration. Inspiration means spirit in you, right? The spirit mm. infected you, made you tremble and, sh- and shake, and then uh, you would have some idea. The idea of people who... Um, go into spasms in religious worship practices, uh, Christianity, but there's also plenty of other religious practices uh, have the same idea. But originally, the word caducus, which is a learned way of referring to epilepsy, referred to parts of animals and plants that fall off naturally when they've served their purpose. So like the flowers, notably, uh, that are blooming right now will eventually dry up and fall off and be replaced by fruit, maybe, um, if all goes well. So this refers not to the shaking so much as to the falling. So somebody is falling, so you have parts falling off. Uh, so your tendency to fall is caducus. Now, when I saw this, I thought at first it was just an alternate spelling of caducus, C-A-D-U-C-E-U-S. The E-U-S spelling is quite different. That's the one that was carried by Hermes, who's associated with medicine in the ancient Greek world, um, and a staff with two serpents twined around it, which is still a symbol for medicine. We see it quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with this other caducus. I see. So caducus would be an antiquated term for epilepsy. Here's one that we actually still do here. I don't know how current this runs, but a carbuncle for a large boil or tumor. I seem to remember having heard that used I don't know how recently. It may show up in old movies, even. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't know how many modern physicians use the term, but it is a large boiler tumor, as you say. And as particularly started as being a red one, it reminded people of a carbuncle, which was a red precious stone that was thought to glow in the dark. And there's been a lot of New Age uh, resurgence in superstitions about the properties of various gems and semi-precious stones um, and you can find them all over the place these days so lots of people are familiar with this notion and they used to have this idea that disease could be cured by various stones but in this case it's the stone that suggests the existence of a disease just by its appearance right so these two terms a carbuncle as the stone and carbuncle as the boil coexisted for many centuries together. Well, what about this next one, catalepsy? It sounds a lot like epilepsy. What, what's the difference? Is there a modern term for this, or what, what is this? This is a little different from epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it comes from a Greek word meaning seizing upon, 
Uh, and in Greek, it was used to refer to philosophers who suddenly had a, a light bulb go on uh, and realize something. And uh, wow, I've got the theory. I suddenly realize an object cannot be in two places at once. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not a great example, but if you suddenly realize that, then uh, you might have benefited from catalepsy. But the seizing part is that you're not just seized by an idea, but your body is seized. It comes to mean a seizure, which leads to a trance, a seizure or a trance, rather, which results in a lack of feeling and consciousness. So you're essentially going into a coma. So it's, it's quite different from epilepsy in, in that case. It's, you become insensible, as they said. You couldn't feel anything, and you black out. You're in a catalepsy. And that turns up a lot in literature. People have fallen into a catalepsy. Yeah, and would that then be related to catatonic? Yes, um, tonic having to do with the strength and activity of the muscles. Mm -hmm. But um, in earlier centuries, people had a really hard time distinguishing between people who were in a coma and people who were dead. Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of concern. We, I think we talked about this in an earlier episode, but there was a lot of concern uh, in the 19th century that people might be buried alive because they were mistakenly diagnosed as deceased. When in fact, they were just suffering from catalepsy. And they used to sell um, bell pulls that you could install in a coffin. So if you woke up buried, you could pull on the bell and alert the gravedigger to come and dig you up. You're not actually dead. Right. Yeah, no, I do remember discussing this in a prior podcast, although I cannot possibly remember which one that was or what what the topic was at that time. Yes, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story of it. Oh, sure. <laughs> at least. What about the next one? Is it Qatar or? Qatar. Qatar. Rhymes with Johnny Qatar. You know? Okay. Now, it wouldn't be related to cataracts, right? No. Even no. though it does have to do with the eyes and... Well, this has to do with the eyes and nose. So let's right. hear about that. C-A-T-A-R-R-H, Qatar. Okay. <laughs> you pronounce it that way, you get more of the idea. That's what I've got right now. I'm getting over a cold. If you have a discharge from your eyes and nose associated with a cold, then you've got a Qatar. And the original theory was that all this extra liquid was caused by your brain leaking. <laughs> it was discharging fluid that came out your nose and eyes. Later, it got extended not just to the symptom, but to the disease. And so a, a cold could be a catar. Mm. And the flu, similarly, they didn't always distinguish between colds and flu, of course. Well, we talked in the last episode about consumption. We didn't describe it or explain what it was, but we talked about it as one of the real classics that you would read about in a book, especially a book written a few centuries ago. What is consumption exactly? When you say, oh, she's sick from consumption. What's that disease? Well, it doesn't mean she shopped too much. No. <laughs> uh, it's tuberculosis, yeah. and it featured very heavily in a lot of important novels and plays. Um, my favorite examples are The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, which is largely about the protagonist's experiences in a Swiss tuberculosis asylum, and La Traviata from the play La Damo Camellia by Dumas Jr. It was very common, particularly among young people, and it was called the wasting disease because people could eat a lot, but the food didn't lead to maintaining of weight, and so they would get very thin. 
coughing up blood, of course, is associated with it. But the weight loss is what really struck people a lot at that time. And it was thought to be kind of romantic. And it was a romantic way to die, especially for women. Violetta in La Traviata sings a remarkably vigorous aria on her deathbed as she's expiring from consumption. It had a lot of different names. The learned name was Phthisis. This would be a good crossword word, I think. P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S. Phthisis. And, uh, uh, yeah, if you were if you were a sadistic crossword puzzle maker, yes, it would be a good one. Yeah, and it could also mean just coughing or wheezing. So mm-hmm. it didn't have to be tuberculosis specifically. If it was phthisis, he could coughing caused by some other disease. One of Shakespeare's lesser known plays, Troilus and Cressida, has a character named Pandarus. We get the word pander from Pandarus, by the way. And he complains of a horse and rascally Tizic. Now, we've already referred to horse and, but Tizic, T-I-S-I-C-K, is how Shakespeare spells it here. And that's just a simplification of the very complicated spelling of this is that we just had. Mm. He mm-hmm. also says that he has a room in his eyes. So he's coughing and he's got runny eyes as well. And that's R-H-E-U-M, room. Right, room. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, but that's coming up. But our next point of discussion here is costive. What is costive? It's actually pretty simple. Constipated. Costive. And and it's pretty much unchanged from the Latin. It it came straight into English. But it developed an associated secondary meaning of being miserly or reticent. So if you're holding back the matter that in that sense of being constipated, you might have constipation of the purse or of the wallet if you were stingy, or I suppose of the voice if you were refusing to speak. Probably got used more often figuratively than medically, I would guess, but it's a word that's pretty much died out in modern English. Yeah, well, a logical extension of the metaphor to mean miserly or reticent. What about crop sick? You look at that and you think, well, is that somebody getting allergic to the crops they're gathering in the field? Or, you know, you ate some of the crop? No, the crop is actually originally a pouch-like enlargement in the throat of birds in which food undergoes partial preparation for digestion before passing on to the craw where digestion is completed. So I remember hearing uh, chickens being referred to as having a crop. And we don't have that division in human digestion, but in slangy use, crop got extended to the human throat and stomach. So it came to mean any kind of stomach discomfort as a result of over-consuming food and drink. So if you had a bellyache after uh, indulging yourself too much at Thanksgiving, uh, you might get crop sick. So it didn't have to do with crops in the field. The crop was your, your throat. I see. Well, yeah, and craw, crop, stick in your craw. I, your craw, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, uh, here's another classic one that you hear actually still, and it's good to know about is uh, croup, right? It's pronounced croup. Yeah, C-R-O-U-P, associated <laughs> with children, and uh, is commonly used. But it could mean a lot of different things. Uh, laryngitis, diphtheria, strep throat, probably most commonly. Her name originally came from a word meaning croaking and alludes to the noise of a cough. So the uh, croup could be 
something like mm. that. And uh, so the disease produced a cough, and then you called it croup. But it was really strongly associated with children. And in earlier days, when they didn't have antibiotics, uh, it was often fatal. We know that the mortality rate for infants was tremendously high in 18th, 19th century, and, and, and every century before that. The idea of babies dying is now exceptional, although America has one of the highest rates of infant mortality of the developed world, partly due to our medical system and patches of poverty and so on. So it's still a, definitely a problem, but not nearly as pervasive as it was, say, in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Well, that's croup, and, and we still hear that one. The one that I had never seen before, and I'm sure isn't used anymore, is dandy fever. That almost sounds like an oxymoron. I have a dandy fever. <laughs> yes, well, dandy, before it meant uh, nice or swell or terrific, it actually had the, the meaning of swell that we've talked about before, uh, of being upper class, uh, sophisticated, rich. So it was originally dengue fever, D-E-N-G-U-E, and in the West Indies where it was quite prevalent, some people punned on the name by calling it dandy fever, just as a sort of playful name of referring to it. And uh, one source says that this was particularly developed in St. Thomas, uh, the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean. The same source says that the French vulgar called it the bouquet, B-O-U-Q-U-E-T, which again, was corrupted into the bucket. Mm. So you didn't necessarily kick the bucket when you had the bucket, but you might be suffering from dandy fever. There is some speculation on another source that I've seen that it referred to the peculiar attitude and gait of the patient, that somebody with dengue fever might walk in a way that would suggest a, an affected snob strolling along in a peculiar way. That seems very far-fetched to me, and the OED did not confirm that or even mention it. I'm guessing that's popular etymology. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know, never having witnessed any great numbers of people suffering from dengue fever, fortunately. So I cannot confirm or deny that it's related to the way that the person walks when they suffer from this. And I assume you can't either. And no. <laughs> okay. Well, here's one that sounds fun, but it's not fun at all. And I've always thought it was a very strange word for a disease, and that is dropsy. Yes, and it turns up a lot. I mean, you yeah. don't have to read very much older literature to run into the dropsy. Yeah. It sounds like some child playing with her doll or something. Well, yeah, you don't want to confuse it with having the dropsies, you know, somebody <laughs> that tends to drop things right. um, in a clumsy manner. You say, whoops, I got the dropsies. <laughs> it is short for hydropsy. And the hydra part, of course, like in a lot of other words, has to do with liquid, fluid, mm -hmm. water. Mm -hmm. So a fluid-filled swelling caused often by kidney or heart diseases could be dropsy. Now, this is one of those terms which didn't come down to being one disease. It's actually a symptom, and it could be associated with several diseases. Yeah, and this is a case where, as medicine has progressed, broad terms have been narrowed down to having specific other terms ascribed to them as we realize more and more that dropsy is too large of a category to be useful for us. Right. What about dyspepsia? Well, this one is not entirely dead, but it used to be used much more frequently, and it just refers to indigestion, mm -hmm. heartburn. 
Uh, mm -hmm. People are always looking for, you know, polite ways to refer to this kind of discomfort. And uh, it does not have an interesting etymology in that it comes straight from Latin. It was called, the, that very thing was called dyspepsia in Latin. So if you were suffering from dyspepsia at a Roman party from eating and drinking too much, the simple way to solve this was to go off somewhere and throw up and self-induced vomiting was a feature of Roman parties. Then you could go back to the party and enjoy some more food and drink. Mm -hmm. These were not um, people uh, suffering from eating disorders. This was actually a socially acceptable practice. I suppose you could be showing appreciation for your host. Oh, this looks so good. I'm going to go throw up so I can eat some of this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's different from dyspepsia, though. That's when you're suffering from indigestion. And, and dyspepsia has nothing to do with consuming too much Pepsi. Uh, no, Pepsi is the cure for dyspepsia. Oh, uh, no Pepsi kidding. was first introduced in 1893 by somebody named Caleb Bradham, and it was called Brad's Drink after the name Bradham. He made it at his drugstore, and then it was uh, renamed Pepsi-Cola in 1898 after the root of the word dyspepsia, and the cola nuts that were used in the recipe gives you the cola, K-O-L-A, by the way, a West African nut. Uh, it's a mild stimulant. And I don't think cola nuts are used in colas anymore. So you had Pepsi referred to this stomach disorder. So it was, it was meant almost to have a medical quality. Oh, I see. All right. Well, I thought that would just be a joke. But it turns out we get Pepsi to cure dyspepsia. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, the next one here sounds like it would be related to dropsy, falling sickness. Yes, it's just another term for epilepsy, which we've talked about before. And there's a nice passage in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar that illustrates this. There's two characters, Casca and Cassius, talking together about Julius Caesar. And this is based on a uh, historical account saying that Caesar was subject to epileptic fits. And once when he was before the Roman Senate and was being offered some special honor, he fell down in a fit. And this was very striking, uh, almost as if his body were rejecting the honor. There's this uh, paradox in Caesar, especially as Shakespeare depicts him of, on the one hand saying, you know, I'm just a common ordinary person and uh, I don't want any special honors or anything. And on the other hand, quite a compiler of powers who managed to create what later became the whole office of the emperor. So anyway, Casca tells about this incident. He says, he then had offered it the third time. He put it the third time by. And still, as he refused it, the rabblemen hooted and clapped their chapped hands and threw up their sweaty nightcaps and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown that it had almost choked Caesar for he swooned and fell down at it. And for mine own part, I durst not laugh for fear of opening my lips and receiving the bad air. But soft, I pray you. What, did Caesar swooned? He fell down in the marketplace and foamed at mouth and was speechless. Tis very like he hath the falling sickness. So this was uh, a, a story which may be apocryphal that the people were saying, you know, we need to go back to the days of kings ruling over Rome and beyond the Republic, and so we're going to give you a crown, and, and Caesar turned it down. And in the process, the third time turning down the crown, he has his episode of falling sickness. 
the next one's got to be related to Carbuncle, right? It's Furuncle. And I was thinking of, uh, you know, some old guy, your uncle, who has uh, a lot of hair on his chest. Yeah, right. <laughs> but actually, it's just mm-hmm. another word for boil. People suffered from boils a lot because there were many names for them. Uh, originally, Furuncle is a word meaning petty thief. And how in the world it got to be a, a bump is kind of interesting. The originally was applied to botany, to plants that got a, an infection of some kind. So the sap swelled up into a kind of boil-like protrudence on a vine and on the stem. And that was a furuncle. And then when people got them, they, they also called them that. Well, let's, let's end on a, um, another interesting word, gleet. <laughs> I don't know anything about gleet. Let's let's find out about that. And this one I just love. It just, <laughs> you got the gleet. And it just sounds so, I don't know, like something from a fantasy novel set in Anglo-Saxon England or something. But no, it just meant slimy discharges. And they, they could be all kinds of things that came out of the human body. It could be called gleet. And I think it got applied to animals as well. I see. It has that sound of something that's just entirely made up, gleet, uh, especially because uh, nobody knows what that is anymore. All right. Next time I have a slimy discharge, I'll know what to call it. Okay. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen, by the way. And I hope I hope lots of these things don't happen. <laughs> Neither <laughs> sleet nor gleet be with you. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't want any dyspepsia or dropsy or... or for uncles or <laughs> catalepsy. I don't want any of this stuff. But uh, I want to keep talking about this stuff. So let's do that again next time. Okay. See you then. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to common errors podcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.